Gotta be equivocal, Harry continued, gazing into his beer. Shy, almost mystical, nothing urgent or grabbing. The woman stooped down to unpack a suitcase, and the metal veins of her hat fluttered over her face. She saw us staring at her, looked around for a moment, and lowered the blinds. We sat back and looked thoughtfully at each other like three triumvirs, deciding how to divide an empire. Not saying too much, and one eye watching for any chance of a double deal. Five minutes later, the singing started. At first, I thought it was one of the azalea trios in trouble with an alkaline pH, but the frequencies were too high. They were almost out of the audible range, a thin, tremolo quaver which came out of nowhere and rose up the back of the skull. Harry and Tony frowned at me. Your livestock's unhappy about something, Tony told me. Can you quieten it down? It's not the plants, I told them. Can't be. The sound mounted in intensity, scraping the edges off my occipital bones. I was about to go down to the shop when Harry and Tony leapt out of their chairs and dived back against the wall. Steve, look out! Tony yelled at me. He pointed wildly at the table I was leaning on, picked up a chair, and smashed it down on the glass top. I stood up and brushed the fragments out of my hair. What the hell's the matter? Tony was looking down at the tangle of wickerwork tied round the metal struts of the table. Harry came forward and took my arm gingerly. That was close. You all right? It's gone. Tony said flatly. He looked carefully over the balcony floor and down over the rail into the street. What was it? I asked. Harry peered at me closely. Didn't you see it? It was about three inches from you. Emperor Scorpion, big as a lobster. He sat down weakly on a beer crate. Must have been a sonic one. The noise is gone now. After they'd left, I cleared up the mess and had a quiet beer to myself. I could have sworn nothing had got onto the table. On the balcony opposite, wearing a gown of ionized fiber, the golden woman was watching me. I found out who she was the next morning. Tony and Harry were down at the beach with their wives, probably enlarging on the scorpion, and I was in the shop tuning up a con arachnid orchid with the UV lamp. It was a difficult bloom with a normal full range of 24 octaves, but unless it got a lot of exercise, it tended to relapse into neurotic minor key transpositions, which were the devil to break. And as the senior bloom in the shop, it naturally affected all the others. Invariably, when I opened the shop in the mornings, it sounded like a madhouse, but as soon as I'd fed the arachnid and straightened out one or two pH gradients, the rest promptly took their cues from it and dimmed down quietly in their control tanks. Two-time, three-four, the multi-tones, all in perfect harmony. There were only about a dozen true arachnids in captivity. Most of the others were either mutes or grafts from dicot stems, and I was lucky to have mine at all. 
I bought the place five years earlier from an old half-deaf man called Sayers, and the day before he left, he moved a lot of rogue stock out to the garbage disposal scoop behind the apartment block. Reclaiming some of the tanks, I'd come across the arachnid, thriving on a diet of algae and perished rubber tubing. Why Sayers had wanted to throw it away, I'd never discovered. Before he came to Vermilion Sands, he'd been a curator at the Kew Conservatoire, where the first chloroflora had been bred, and had worked under the director, Dr. Mandel. As a young botanist of 25, Mandel had discovered the prime arachnid in the Guiana forest. The orchid took its name from the Khan arachnid spider, which pollinated the flower, simultaneously laying its own eggs in the fleshy ovule, guided, or as Mandel always insisted, actually mesmerized to it by the vibrations which the orchid's calyx emitted at pollination time. The first arachnid orchids beamed.